everyone. Thank you for clicking on another episode of Apostolic Archives. The following episode you're about to listen to is from Reverend Lee Stone King in the year 1998 at another Kentucky District Camp meeting. Thank you so much for listening and may it bless you today in Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen. There's only one Brother Stone King. I'm going to tell you something that I love and appreciate about this man. He doesn't have a specialty. You know, there's some folks that have a specialty. I heard some evangelists say, you've got to have a specialty to ever amount to anything. You know, if you don't have a, something special, you know, if you're not doing something real special, they don't want you. This man doesn't have a specialty. He just preaches the gospel. I thought that's what we're called to do. <laughs> but, but over the years, Brother Stone King and I have de- developed a, a very good friendship. He has been a, a Christian, a brother, a man of God, a great evangelist. And, and really, folks, I don't know what else to say. So I'm just going to, I'm a man of very few words when it comes to introducing people. But let me tell you, I want to introduce to you tonight a man of God that will preach the word of God to us. And if you listen to him, you'll be saved. Praise God. Thank you, Brother Stone. Thank you, Brother Stone. I would like to say to you tonight that my specialty is Jesus. And that all that I am and all that I ever hope to be is because of a man called Jesus. There is no one like him. There never has been and there never will be again. He's worth living for, dying for. He's worth all that you can give toward him. It is a great pleasure to have walked among you people and to have fellowshiped with you this week. Your district superintendent, your district board, brother and sister Merrick, wonderful, wonderful people. In fact, there really aren't any people exactly like us. We are the best. We all say so. It must be true. (laughs) And the thing that makes it possible to say that is because in our heart of hearts, all of us would give God the glory for what we are and what we have and where we're going. Tonight, I want to conclude this camp meeting with this particular message. I want you to turn with me tonight to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. I feel like the Lord has spoken to me and directed me to discuss these things with you tonight. I do not doubt but what we are living at the end of the age. And I personally believe that Jesus will come in my day. And we don't have a lot of time left. And we desperately need help, and we need it now. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, And what he's doing is he's pointing out the things that he likes 
about this church and the things that he dislikes about this church. He says in verse 4, and he goes through and gives them some good marks, but in verse 4 he says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. In verse 6, it's a positive note. He says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest, everyone say hatest, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That is very strong terminology. Jesus said here, which thing I also hate, or which I also hate. If you look in verse 12, he's writing to the angel of the pastor of the church in Pergamos. And again, he's pointing out the good points of the church, the things he likes about them, the things he doesn't like about them, warnings, etc. In verse 14, he says, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And then in 15, he says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Say, which thing I hate. Say it again. Say, Jesus hated it. Say, whatever this thing was, Jesus hated it. And I simply want to entitle this tonight, Which Thing I Hate. Would you lift your hands, your voices, and your hearts, and would you pray for revelation and understanding to come to you tonight, and that God will do with us here in this place exactly what he wants to do with us, both individually and conglomerately. Lord Jesus, tonight, I thank you for the wonder-working power of God that has manifested itself in this camp meeting. I thank you for the washing of the water of the Word, which we have heard so profoundly each day. I thank you for the miracles of healing I thank you for deliverances that have come here. I thank you for encouragements. I thank you for renewed dedications and consecrations. But tonight I'm asking for revelation and understanding of your word that we will see as we have never seen before. And that you will help us to leave this place with a boldness that we have not known heretofore. Anoint us now to hear and to speak. We will not fail to give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. We ask these things in Jesus' blessed and wonderful name. And everyone said, Amen. The Lord bless you. You may be seated. Would you clap uproariously one more time tonight? And would you lift your voice, praise to him. It's so important because when people get in one mind and one accord, that is when things happen in the spirit. 
And just as easily as you feel him here tonight, you can have anything from God that you need. Now, it is interesting for me to observe casually here that even though I ask everyone to clap and shout, not all of you did. So we'll do it again. Would you clap your hands? Everybody, it makes such a difference. When everybody is involved, nothing like people being together in one mind, in one accord. Hallelujah, Jesus. You may wonder why I do that. I do it all the time. The reason is because I was not raised in this. I've not always had this wonderful, glorious truth. And before I was saved, I can admit to you that the theater was my favorite form of entertainment. I have seen some of the greatest performances that human eyes and human ears could ever witness or hear. I have watched crowds of people in the thousands cheer, throw handkerchiefs, flowers, bouquets, throw all kinds of things, lose purses, hurt themselves over someone singing or someone acting. And when I came into this, I realized that the single greatest performance of all was on an old rugged hill nearly 2,000 years ago. But there was no one there to applaud. There was no one there to clap. And so I made up my mind that on every occasion I could, I would give him a standing ovation that I would lift my hands and my voice and I would clap for him and I would shout for him with my voice because Calvary is the single greatest performance that the world has ever seen or been eyewitness to and there was no one there to applaud but we're here tonight and Jesus we applaud you because you are great and you are greatly to be praised of your kingdom there will never be an end Hallelujah. And the reason I ask people to shout with their voices is because if you go through the Bible, and I won't preach it tonight, it's a whole another subject, but if you look in the Bible at how many times when the people of God shouted with their voices, God did mighty things. Walls came down. Mighty things happened. But for tonight... I want to reiterate, Revelation 2, 6 says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And then in verse 15 of Revelation, to the church at Pergamos, he said, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. And again, I say to you, that is very strong language. Jesus said twice in the same chapter, which thing I hate. He hated it. 
interesting to note that though cults, false doctrines, isms, and schisms rise and fall and seemingly fade away, in actuality, they never do. The demonic spirits that gave birth to them through human cooperation continue to exist, or we might say live. They simply reappear with new names and new faces. For example, Eichmann is dead, Goebel is dead, Rommel is dead, Hitler is dead, but the devils that possess them are not dead. And they simply came back when Nazism crumbled and fell. They simply came back with new names and new faces. Communism rose on the scene. The same spiritual agenda, the same tyranny, the same hatred, the same wickedness, the same cruelty. Those devils don't die. They only come back with new names and new faces. An interesting doctrine and lifestyle developed and practiced by early Christians at Pergamos in the days of John the Revelator have manifested themselves powerfully in our day. Not only is this ancient spirit spreading, but it is being accepted by some of our very own people. It is the spirit of the Nicolaitans. It has come back with new names, new faces, but the propaganda accompanying its return and existence is much the same as at its inception nearly 2,000 years ago. Some of its terminology is, we are free. Free from bondage. We're free from legalism. Terminology is exactly the same as it was nearly 2,000 years ago. It's got new names now, new faces, but the spirit is the same. When I was in Bible school, when I got the Holy Ghost when I was 23, I marveled at the ability of Pentecostals to use the Word of God. And my biggest desire was that I would be able to handle the Word of God and know the Bible the way Pentecostals knew it. And so Bible school was an absolute thrilling experience for me, and I loved every day of it, studying. And I came across this term in Revelation, Nicolaitans, and I never really knew what it was all about, and it really wasn't taught on in school that I can remember. And though I did not do an in-depth search or study at that time, basically what I found out about the Nicolaitans when I was in Bible school was that they believed a similar doctrine of eternal security, or a, a doctrine that was similar to eternal security. I don't know if you know this or not, but eternal security was developed in depth during the Reformation period by the founder of the Presbyterian Church, whose name was Calvin. And Calvin is also responsible for the doctrines of saved by election and also infant damnation. But those latter two were not popular because no one really wanted to believe 
in saved by election. They didn't want to think about infants being cast into hell. So those doctrines were not popular. But this once saved, always saved business, it clicked and people liked it. And that flourished. So I knew that much about them, but that's really all I knew about them. And in this last year, I began to dig around, and it cost me $179 to buy one set of books in order to get about four or five paragraphs that explained what I'm about to tell you here tonight. Would you lift your hands again, and would you pray right now again for a spirit of total understanding and revelation to come to your mind and heart? Lord Jesus, sweep over us here tonight and cause us to come out of our places of lethargy and complacency, boldly declaring the word of the Lord. I pray for every believer here tonight that they will become bold as never before and stand up in this present hour and declare that they are one of them from the beginning that we are apostolic Christians. Here it is. Nicolaitans is a term used describing members of Christian congregations who held a doctrine that the Lord hated. Men in church history, such as Irenaeus, said that they were followers of one Nicholas of Antioch. Nicholas of Antioch was a proselyte to the faith who was among the seven men chosen to serve the Jerusalem congregation. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 5, but this man forsook true Christian doctrine. And Irenaeus said of Nicholas of Antioch that they lived, his followers lived in unrestrained indulgences. And at one time, he had been one of the council in Jerusalem. Hippolytus from church history confirmed this by noting that Nicholas left correct doctrine and had the habit of indifference as to what a man ate and to how he lived. Jesus said, which thing I hate. There's something called the apostolic constitutions from the fourth century in church history. And the apostolic constitutions describe Nicolaitans as shameless in un cleanness. There was also a man whose name was Clement of Alexandria. He said of the Nicolaitans that they abandoned themselves to pleasures like goats in a life of shameless self-indulgence. In the letter to the church at Pergamos, the Nicolaitans were associated closely with those people who held the teaching of Balaam descriptive in each instance of an evil teacher who bought, brought them into bondage and finally to heresy. Now listen to this. The letter to the church at Pergamos specifically charged them with having seduced people into eating meat offered to idols and into acts of fornication. Fornication is a broad coverage word that includes all sexual sins. These people offered meat to idols and they were involved in various acts of fornication. The decree of the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 
had laid down two specific conditions upon which Gentiles were to be admitted into Christian fellowship. They were to abstain from things offered to idols and from fornication. These were the very regulations which the Nicolaitans violated. They were a people who used Christian liberty as an occasion for the flesh. Against such, Paul warned in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13, the enticement to such a course of action was the pagan society in which Christians lived where eating meat offered to idols was common. Sex relations outside marriage were completely acceptable in such a society. The Nicolaitans attempted to establish a compromise, everyone say compromise, with the pagan society of the Greco-Roman world that surrounded them. The people, of course, most susceptible to such teaching were no doubt the upper classes who stood to lose the most by a separation from the culture to which they had belonged before they were converted. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans was dualistic. In other words, they reasoned that the human body was evil anyway, and only the spirit of man was good. A Christian, they said, therefore, could do whatever he desired with his body because it had no importance anyway. The spirit, on the other hand, was the recipient of the grace of God, which meant that grace and forgiveness were his no matter what he did. They were those ready to compromise with the world, but they were judged by the author of the book of Revelation to be most dangerous because the result of their teaching would have conformed Christianity to the world rather than have Christianity change the world. God did not save us to conform to this world. He saved us to change this world. Do you hear me tonight? God saved us to bring a light into darkness. He saved us tonight to bring righteousness in the presence of wickedness. He saved us to save somebody else. We are not supposed to look like this world, act like this world, dress like this world, think like this world, talk like this world, because we are not of this world. I have been born of a city which is above. Jesus is the king and master of my life. Do you hear me tonight? I don't care what the world does. I've got it, and I know that I've got it. And this is the best thing that has ever happened to any of us. There has never been anything like this. There never will be again. This is that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel. In the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Can you hear me tonight? Another that is not coming. Another that is not coming. This is that, this is that, this is that, this is that, and I've got that. Say, I've got that. Say, I've got that. Tap your hands again, all ye people, and shout unto the Lord with a voice, triumph.
do not get anyone saved until you first get them lost. We have padded far too long. You don't need to make excuses for Jesus or his word. Do you hear me tonight? If some prominent person comes in among your people, you should not pat it or try to hold the brakes on to try to impress them. Do you hear me tonight? This gospel only works on the hungry and the thirsty. It does not work on the scoffer and the mocker. It was never designed for them. We're not looking for them. We're looking for the hungry. We're looking for the thirsty. That's what we're looking for, and that's what God is looking for. You want to do your thing like never before when visitors come in because they're looking for something. They're looking for something. They're looking for the real thing. They're not looking for a cheap substitute. They've had all that. They're looking for something that is real. And we've got that which is real. This is real. This is real. Oh, you ought to be shouting. You ought to be screaming with your voice. Because look where he's brought you from. Look where he has brought you from. And while I'm on the subject, this business of grace, there's so much preaching in our day about the grace of God. Do you know what the Bible says about the grace of God? Listen to this. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 21, the Bible says that as sin hath reigned, everyone say reigned, unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness. Did you get it? Grace reigns through righteousness. You got to get that. Grace reigns through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Without righteousness, without the acts of righteousness, grace does not reign. It has no throne. It has no channel of operation. It does not exist. And I've gotten myself in so much hot water over this next statement, but I can handle it. I don't care what anybody tells you or what they don't tell you. Grace alone does not save you. No, it doesn't. Not alone. Grace alone does not save you. The mercy of God alone does not save you. The mercy of God alone by itself cannot save anyone. The love of God does not save you. The love of God does not save you. Not alone. It doesn't. The grace of God is in the whole world. The mercy of God's to everybody. God loves the whole world. The thing that saves you is obedience to the doctrine. That is what saves you. Obedience to the doctrine of God, His Word. That is what saves you. But the moment you begin to become obedient to the law of God, 
Grace comes running. Love comes running. Mercy comes running. And they scoop you up. And God lifts you from your sinful state into the realm that you're in tonight. That's why you dance here. That's why you shout. That's why you clap. That's why you run. That's why you can't contain it. It's like a fire shut up in our bones because I've got the love of God. I've got the mercy of God. I've got the grace of God. But it came because I was obedient to his word. I was obedient to his doctrine. That's what I've got, what I've got. Oh. I think you ought to shout. I think you ought to demonstrate. I think you ought to absolutely, after all we've heard here this week, and after all we've felt here this week, my God in heaven, the joy of the Lord is in this place. The power of God is in this house. Deliverance is in this house. The healer's in the house. Truth is in this house. His word is among us. Yes! Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You may be seated, but would you just simply sit there and clap intensely for a moment and let your voice out in praise and adoration and thanksgiving. People, take it from me. You're never going to clap enough. You're never going to shout enough. You're never going to sing enough. You're never going to preach enough to thank him for even one drop of blood. You're never going to be able to do it. And so we need to do everything we possibly can to exalt him, to venerate him, to lift him up, to worship him, because he is high and mighty. His train fills the temple. His glory is from everlasting to everlasting. There's never been anyone like him. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is the great I am. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He deserves my utmost for his highest. Yes. Yes, he does. At the time of the Roman Empire, Christianity was born during the time of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the most famous and far-flung empire of Christ's day. The marked characteristic of the Roman Empire was tolerance. The Roman Empire was noted for its tolerance. And the most notable characteristic of the church was its benevolence or kindness. Thus, seemingly, the two, the Roman Empire and Christianity, would have gotten on well together. Because one was known for tolerance and the other was known for benevolence, kindness. But they could not get on well together. Because the Christians swore allegiance to Jesus as Lord of their lives. Everything else was expected to be subservient to him. And the Romans did not like this. 
no more than they like us for what we stand for in our day. The church in the beginning had high standards for human conduct and called for conformity to these standards. Christians in the beginning said, if you expect to be saved, you must conform to Christ's way of life. And many of the people of the empire who came in contact with Christians resented this. The church condemned the world and sought to save it. They soon found out that the world was no friend of their preaching efforts to help them on to God. For from the world there came contempt and diversion followed by persecution. The Christians in the beginning, this is from the pages of church history, the Christians were charged with being the most unsocial of all people. Have you ever had anyone tell you that you're unsocial? I have been told you are unsocial. And I am. And sometimes when I go into restaurants, I am very aware of the spirit world and I can feel devils there. So when I get the food, I say grace twice as long as I normally would. It just stirs up everything. It just shakes everything. When you came to the church and got the Holy Ghost, your relatives, they're such a pain in the neck, aren't they? You think it, but I'm saying it. Don't you hate the holidays, Christmas and Thanksgiving? Here they come with all of their boozed up minds and nicotine and all of that. And the moment they walk in, the fight begins. Because they've heard that you've been to church and they've heard that you've got this Holy Ghost and they've heard that you've been baptized. And so the fight begins the moment they walk in because they are determined to pull you down to their level. But we are determined to lift them up to our level. You can feel the strain. You can feel the strain. But I tell you here tonight that greater is he that is within us than he that is in the world. I tell you tonight, I don't care what they say, I am unsocial. I am unsocial to this world, but among the people of God. I want to tell you, you may be seated, I feel like a real awkward bird in this world. You know anything about a nighthawk? A nighthawk on the ground is awkward and clumsy. But when he takes wing, he becomes the essence of grace and beauty. And he soars on the currents of the night air. And I feel like just an awkward nighthawk in this world. But when I get in here among you, I take wing. And I can sort of just soar on the currents and the rising and the falling of the Spirit of God. And that's how it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to fit to this world. We're not supposed to conform to this world. We are supposed to lift this world. And if they ever get caught upon the air current, so to speak, of the love of God and the power of the gospel, they will soar with us. They will soar with us. Hallelujah. 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 I feel like rejoicing in what we have. I just feel like rejoicing in what we have. However you want to rejoice, however you feel to rejoice, that's 
what you should do. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Christians in the beginning were charged with being the most unsocial of all people. They came to be considered strange. Directly from the pages of church history, I'm quoting. Anybody ever said to you, you're strange? I was sitting in a restaurant one day, every day, every day is one thing. I was sitting in a restaurant one day, and I was not trying to take up space as by myself with in the booth, so I sat at a counter, and I was just having a malt or something, I forget, a sandwich, and this man happened in the area where I live. Somebody came in and sat down beside me, and I wasn't paying attention, and all of a sudden he turned to me, and I could feel his spirit. He turned to me, he said, you send forth powerful vibrations. I said, would you like to me to tell you what it is? I'll tell you what it is. It's something called the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's something called the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It is written, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. And if you're really full of the Holy Ghost and you walk into the world, they feel something in your life. They see a light in your face. They feel something come from you because you're emanating that continuously. They be seated. I'm telling you, you come out of services like these at night and go into surrounding villages and towns if they exist down here and go into a restaurant that's filled with sinners and everybody will stop eating because when you walk in, somebody else walks in and the devils inside of them feel the Holy One. They feel the Holy One from Israel and they see a light. They see a light. You don't understand what's inside of you. You don't understand what you've got a hold of. But He is the light of the world. Jesus said you are the light of the world. He said you are the salt of the earth. Yes. There's an old saying that says you can lead a horse to water, but you cannot make him drink. That's true. But if you will sprinkle salt in his oats, you cannot keep him away from the water. And that's what you're supposed to be. We're supposed to be a salt shaker. Just shake a little here and shake a little there and shake a little over here. And they'll get so thirsty. They will get so thirsty. They will get so thirsty that they will come to the water. This is the water of life. These are the springs of living water. And I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. And I'm drinking my fill tonight. 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 Yes. Let me tell you the truth of the matter. We are not the ones that are strange. You get the feeling badly about yourself, go to the local airport, sit there for 30 minutes and watch people come and go. You'll get up with your bag and walk away feeling very good about yourself. We're not the ones that are strange. They are the ones that are strange out there. I know where I was. I know where I am. I know where I'm going. They don't know anything like that. I've been redeemed. I've been saved. My sins are gone. My life has been changed. My thinking has been rearranged. I don't belong to that mess out there, and I'm not going to belong to that mess out there. Say, I'm so glad. 
What are you glad about? Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad about Jesus. I'm glad about salvation. I'm glad about what I feel in my soul. In the beginning, during the times of the Roman Empire, Christians came to be considered strange and to be hated and counted as enemies of society. And that spirit is rising right now in this country. There's a move on right now to make Christians the scapegoat in this country from the top down. They were counted as enemies of society, Christians, because they were simple and modest in their dress. Oh, I'm coming, I'm coming. They were considered enemies of society because they were strictly moral in their conduct. And they would not go to the games and the feasts. That's what history says about our brothers and sisters in the beginning. They were simple and modest in their dress strictly moral in their conduct. They would not go to the games and the feasts of the Romans. Christians even condemned those who sold fodder or chopped up hay for the animals of the Romans to be sacrificed to pagan gods. Therefore, the public came to dread Christians, for the Romans feared the wrath of their own gods whom they served when they did not sacrifice to them. If the crops failed, if the Tiber River overflowed, if plagues came, the cry was, throw the Christians to the lions. Yet the Christians were kind to all who were in trouble. They stayed and nursed the sick during the plagues when others fled, and they lived highly moral lives. And in order to test men's loyalty, the Roman government required that everyone appear at certain public places and there burn just a pinch, just a pinch, a little bit, not very much, just a pinch of incense to the emperor. Now, what's wrong with a little? We're not throwing in a whole cup. We're just taking a pinch. That's all the government requires, a pinch, just to satisfy them. But the Christian... They considered this emperor worship, and they would not give even a bench, not even one grain of incense. Because they said, we will worship Jesus alone as our king. There is no king apart from Jesus. To him alone we give our allegiance. They wouldn't give. And the government authorities began to seek them out and punish them by death. As a protective measure, the Christians donned the cloak of secrecy. Hence the catacombs in Rome and their history was born. There are six million people buried underground in tunnels. Some open, some filled in with earth. Six million people buried 
in about 60 catacombs in and around the present city of Rome. 54 of them are Christian, 6 of them are Jewish. Because when the Christians would not conform to the Roman Empire, when they would not offer even a pinch of incense to the emperor, when they would not be involved with the games and the immorality and the hedonistic society of their day, the Romans counted them as enemies of society. Because I tell you, if you're a real Christian, you bring conviction to those who sit in darkness. You bring conviction to those who sit in darkness. And so, the persecution was so great that they began to, they found these passageways underground, the terrain in and around Rome, Italy. There's soft sandstone there. And they found these tunnels. And the Christians began to go underground and to live underground to try to save their lives. The Roman Empire was crumbling. Nero, the most infamous, the most diabolic, the most wretched specimen of humanity that's ever lived, was in power time of some of the most horrific persecution of the Christians. And he used the Christians as a scapegoat. He set the city of Rome on fire and then blamed it on the Christians. And they dragged them out like animals and they burned them alive and they fed them to the lions and they tore them apart with the swords and the axes of the gladiators, etc., etc., etc. It's all there. So these Christians went underground. And one guide I had one time there said, that the Christian children, their, their skin was snow white. It was like chalk because they had never seen sunlight. They kept them underground for fear of them being somehow arrested by the Christians and slaughtered or killed or whatever. And I remember I was in the catacombs one day with a tour group and, and I was standing there and there was a skeleton and it was lying in this grave that had been uncovered and it had this... this steel fence over it, this heavy wire fence over it. And I remember my thoughts coming to me, and I said, Lord, I don't know what to do. 